We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Hello and welcome to another Water Cooler Forum, the test track for public policy where we run a few ideas around the circuit and see how well they survive. Tonight, the future of our universities after the shock of the pandemic. 60 years ago, a place at university was something to which only the academically elite and the very fortunate could aspire. Now a place at university is available well to almost anyone on demand. And the prestige of a university degree and the prospect of a ticket into a career has been attracting students in ever larger numbers over the past decade. Yet there's a growing sentiment that students are not getting value for money from their fees and the income sacrificed to pursue a qualification. Course content frequently disappoints. The influx of non-English speaking students inevitably changes the character of the university campus and attrition rates are unacceptably high, leaving many students feeling unfulfilled. Now the sector has been dealt a substantial blow by COVID-19. Overseas students' numbers are dramatically lower, affecting revenue and research. Courses have gone online, leading to the question, of course, of how much physical campus activity matters and whether there are cheaper ways to get credentialed. Is COVID-19 the shock the sector had to have? And how will it adapt to changing circumstances? To discuss these issues, I'm joined from Perth by Celia Hammond, MP, a former Vice-Chancellor of Notre Dame University, and by Andrew Norton, Professor in Higher Education at the Australian National University in Canberra. Welcome to you both. Andrew, if I could start with you first, can you give me just a, 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 in a, a snapshot of where our universities are and where they've come from in the last 10 years and just how much trouble are they in? Yeah, so really there's two things going on, one domestic, one international. So for domestic students, a bit over a decade ago, we basically took the previous funding caps off the domestic uh, student numbers. Uh, they exploded for a number of years and we're now up to about 40% of the school cohort going on to university compared to very low 30s when all of this started. So a major structural change in higher education and a consequent increase in uh, public spending and public lending by the HELP loan scheme. Around the, in parallel times, uh, the international student market also took off, uh, led by China and India, but you know, with most countries in the world participating in some way. And this was enormously lucrative for the universities, particularly the Group of Eight Sandstone Universities, where you know, they were charging students $40,000 a year for a course, which they'll get, say, 15000 for a domestic student. And so in my view, they were making huge profits on this. And this, in turn, was fueling an enormous research boom. And so the research output of Australia's universities increased enormously. Over the last four or five years, this has all started to go wrong. So the government capped the demand-driven system at the end of 2017. And then, of course, as you mentioned, uh, the borders closed uh, last year. And as a result, the number of international students starting their degrees has fallen. And this will be a long-term uh, problem for the universities because someone who's not a first year this year won't be a second year next year or third year the year after that. 
And so even if we do start getting reasonable numbers of commencing students middle of next year as the budget forecast, it will still take many years to get back to where we were. And so the universities are doing the main thing they can, which is cut their costs. And that has led to very large numbers of staff losing their positions, uh, courses closing, research not happening. And so we're going to see a reasonably rapid downward resizing of the system. Celia, uh, the, if I can turn to you, this was something that um, you didn't have to be Nostradamus, did you, just to see this coming? Um, you know, the rapid expansion, uh, you know, the telltale signs of things like falling completion rates at universities uh, and, uh, and uh, the fact that there was this heavy reliance, particularly it seems in the group of eight universities on students from mainland China, which was uh, always a problematic uh, thing in terms of risk. Do you think that the universities should have prepared better for this? Um, it's an interesting question, Nick, and I'm, I'm, I'm indebted to Andrew's insights as well on this. I've been reading Andrew's insights for at least the last decade, um, previously with his work at the Grattan Institute. I, I think it might be, I think it's a bit simplistic to say that the universities are solely responsible here. So yes, they should take ownership and responsibility for the reliance on international students, particularly if they've relied on one or two markets only. That's a risk in anybody's, you know, whatever business you run, when you rely on um, one source or one or two sources, then, then that's a risk. You're playing a risk. And I do think that all universities were aware of that. And I do think that over time they were developing further international, you know, trying to internationalise, going to other markets, but, but caught short because of the pandemic. Uh, what I would say, though, is should universities have become, got better prepared, should they have done this? I personally think that two decades of higher education policy have led us to where we are today. Um, and I'm, I'm not scathing of all aspects of higher education policy, but I do think that it has influenced. Going back to the early 2000s, where we started to make at the boards of universities far more akin to a corporate board, where we have started to put a lot of emphasis on world rankings without necessarily asking ourselves, hey, are they the rankings that we actually want to judge ourselves by? Or is that perfectly suited to us? Uh, to um, additional um, accountability regimes on universities. I do think that there's been a, a combination of things here, not all of which have been in the hands or capable of being changed by universities themselves. So Andrew, returning to you, you, you gave us a hint there that we're going to see the sector retreating, shrinking for the first time in, well, I guess living memory. What will that look like? What, what will universities be doing less of? Well, research is the main thing they'll be doing less of because it was the surpluses on international students that was funding a lot of that. So on my estimates for 2018, at absolute minimum, $3 billion of research activity was coming from international students and probably more. Uh, and so that's a very big loss, assuming it all goes. The other thing that's going on simultaneously is the, the job ready graduates package that the government passed last year. Now, one of the key elements of this was that they took a report by Deloitte Access Economics on teaching and scholarship costs by discipline 
and decided the average cost should be the new funding rate. Now, on, on my analysis, this is essentially going for an economies of scale system. And so the, the average cost is heavily driven by the big universities that have got economies of scale. And this is meaning that relatively small disciplines or small subjects with disciplines are in real trouble. And so we've seen languages courses closing, lots of humanities courses closing. Story in this morning's conversation about earth sciences departments closing, because that's been a, a relatively small field, though an incredibly successful one in Australia due to mining, but nevertheless relatively small in student numbers. And so what I think we're going to see is there will be many of the niche courses that have been in the system over the years won't be there because there's no fat in Commonwealth funding to support them anymore. And the fat that might have been there from international student profits is also not there. And so I think under in the new world, you know, almost every university activity will have to be entirely or largely self-funding and activities that have sort of been mission driven, nice to have, but not funding themselves will increasingly be in jeopardy. And so for domestic students who want to do those courses, that's going to be a, a negative. And the shock to the system, I think, is that we've had basically, I think, uh, more or less 60 plus 64 years of, of steady growth in university sizes since the Murray Report, uh, which uh, was commissioned by Sir Robert Menzies and led to the expansion of higher education back in the late 50s. Celia, uh, go, let's go back to the Murray Report. The Murray Report made the point that everybody who had the capacity intellectual or mental capacity to benefit from university should go to university. And Murray put the figure at about 17%, one seven. Uh, well, we've got to that level, we've kept going. Uh, it's now well on its way to the 40%, which I think uh, the Bradley report uh, uh, put in, in as a target under Gillard. It, it's a simple question. Are there too many people going to university? And I, and particularly drawing from your experience as a Vice-Chancellor, did you see evidence of that? Look, I think we have to go back to what do we think that university education is for? What purpose does it serve? And, you know, one part of me which believes that any knowledge or any learning is, is a positive, that you can, you know, that, that that's a good in and of itself, would say, well, 40% is never enough. But, but it, it is not like that. I think... When we talk about higher education, we have now lifted from the 17% that it was to 40%. And arguably we have changed the nature of higher education by moving towards the universalization of higher education. We have changed irrevocably, well, not irre irrevocably if we reduce, you know, how many go into it, but we've changed the nature of it. And I'm not talking, I mean, it is in, in a sense talking about diminished standards it's changed standards because whereas previously you may have had the top 10%, you are now taking the top 40%. And they're still graduating in the same rates as they were when it was the top 10%. So something must have changed. And in my, uh, you know, when the Bradley report came out and the move to 40% and the demand-driven system, I was very much behind it, very in support of it. But over the last 10 years, I think that what it has done, it's helped cement this situation where most universities are exactly the same as each other. They all try, there's very little differentiate, differentiation. 
things like niche courses that um, Andrew was talking about. You know, if we've got small demand for courses, why should every university be running them? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at a big perspective or at a little, you know, on a, on a micro scale. So I, I do think that our system, I think it's time for changing how we look at higher education, how we look at tertiary education and what our expectations are and reframe the discussion in that, in that way. Andrew, we touched on there the, 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 uh, the uniformity to some degree of universities. Uh, 40 plus universities, I, you probably know the exact number in this country, uh, and, and uh, stemming from a, a philosophy that, that, you know, there should be a university in every reasonable sized town, that kids should have access to a university in their hometown. Um, inevitably, we have to ask the question now, will there be a shrinking not just in the size and scope of universities, but in universities. Is it possible that we may see universities become less viable in some degree? Uh, I think it's possible. Like there are a few particularly smaller universities that I think don't fit with this economies of scale model. And if this goes back decades, you know, even going back to the, the 70s and 80s, they were merging colleges on the grounds that they were too small. Unfortunately, the ones that are too small are often in regional areas where there's no obvious uh, merger partner that's going to solve their problems. And so that kind of raises, you know, questions which are very common in Australian politics, which is, you know, to what extent do you subsidise things in the regions uh, that aren't commercially viable on the normal criteria? And generally, we've decided that we do want to keep these services in regional areas, but that may need special arrangements for regional institutions, which you've always had to some degree, but whether it's uh, enough in this new model. So looking at that Deloitte report that I mentioned earlier on, you know, that the regional UDs were, you know, very overrepresented in those that were reporting high average costs. And my view is that's because they've spread their relatively small number of students over several campuses. And so they're just not getting the economies of scale of packing, you know, 40, 50,000 people onto a big metropolitan campus. On the general uniformity question, I'm I'm a little bit sceptical of that. Certainly, they all aspire to do a you know teach a range of courses. They all say they're doing research, but actually, they do differ quite a lot. That the you know the difference in scale of research is enormous between the institutions. Some of them are mainly online. Uh, they've got different strengths in terms of what courses they teach. You know, quite different sociological backgrounds, both by class and by ethnicity. So you could argue that despite the sort of the, the legal similarity and the fact that they're all in the same funding framework, there are differences. And there's also a, a small uh, private higher education sector as well, which Notre Dame is sort of used to be part of. Um, Bond still is in a range of more than 100 smaller colleges. And they typically do offer something more distinct, often specialised in one area, uh, usually quite small which is much more intimate environment. So typically they get much higher student satisfaction ratings than the universities do because actually some, probably all the staff know your name and it's a much more intimate environment than a big public university. Yeah, we, we, we've talked in, in you know, solid policy terms up to now, Celia, but I, I might ask you just to inject a little bit of party political niggle in there with the suggestion that... Uh, Almost everything that goes wrong in the higher education sector seems to stem from 
Labour's reforms, uh, you think about Whitlam and that uh, uh, completely unsustainable model where people had a free education. Uh, you think about uh, Hawke, who, to his credit, uh, turned back that free model, but introduced the Dawkins reforms, which ended up with this, this large number of universities spread all over the country. Uh, and, and then you think about Gillard and the, uh, the demand-driven funding model and the, the, the aim for 40%, all of which we have to correct or a Liberal government has to correct. Don't you think it's time now that a Liberal government actually took hold of this policy area and said, look, we're going to do it our way. We're going to do it in, in, the, in the way higher education should be organised instead of um, all the time just seeming to be correcting mistakes from previous governments. Thanks for that, Nick. Look, I actually <laughs> think that quite often uh, Liberal National Government is portrayed... Oh, I've got to keep my nails down. Uh, uh, the Liberal National Government is portrayed as being anti-higher education. And so any changes are immediately picked on as... And I, I still get emails from people here you know, why do you, why does your government hate higher education? This is not about higher education, but this is about us challenging what are some accepted, what, what get accepted as generalised statements about higher education. The most irritating to me in the last 12 months was this push, this line that kept going out that we were, we disliked universities so much that we were denying them JobKeeper. Now, Universities were entitled to JobKeeper if they met the 30% threshold, if they met the 50% threshold. None of the universities got JobKeeper because none of them met the 30% or 50% threshold. What's more, there was an argument that they should have been put on the charities rate, which was 15% turnover drop. None of the universities, if you look at their annual reports for the year 2020, satisfied that threshold either. So the narrative becomes one that we go out of our way to harm universities when we don't. We are holding taxpayers' money and we've got to work out the best way to spend it across a range of different competing needs. Higher education is something that, we, of course, we must invest in and we must invest in it strongly. But we do, in response to the second half of your question, I do think it's time that we came out with a forward, a positive vision for post-school education. I do think it's time that we perhaps shake things back up again. You know, the, the model of just TAFEs and just universities, perhaps we do need to mix this up and actually have a positive vision going forward. It will be attacked no matter what, but to put it forward, this, this space is not owned by the left. Higher education, education is not owned by the left, even though that is what we are frequently told that, that that we disregard it. One fundamental way in which I think we might address it is to look at, again at the funding on, uh, you know, the university in de on demand model um, and, and ask ourselves whether, well, is it any wonder that we get uh, people going to university who perhaps aren't equipped or ready or wouldn't benefit from it when we offer that model? Don't we need some form of... Uh, entry uh, barrier, uh, a test if you like, uh, or perhaps even something like the old Commonwealth scholarships where there was a limited number, they were in demand, so they went to the most able students. Is that an idea we could take forward, Celia? Look, provided you can take into account 
the various very legitimate reasons as to why somebody's preparation before they came into, you know, applying for higher education or further education. And there are ways of doing that. Equity measures take into account schooling system, background, etc. Then I do think we do need to limit the amount of money that is being spent in, in an ideal world. And, and I know that my fellow, uh, the, my ex-colleagues in the Vice-Chancellor world perhaps wouldn't agree with this, but I do think we should be decreasing the amount of students that we are funding to go to university. I'm not necessarily talking about decreasing the amount of funding, because I do think that we there are vital areas of research. As Andrew's pointed out, a lot of the research funding was being done from international student fees. That's drying up. I'm not necessarily talking about decreasing the amount of funding, but I do think we could be decreasing the amount of students that go into the old type of the traditional type of bachelor degree and higher degree qualifications. And we should be beefing up what we're doing in the vocational educational space, diplomas, advanced diplomas and other opportunities. Because in those areas, we don't necessarily, we don't have a requirement that we also need to invest in research. So we should in some ways go back to the future or go back to the past and have add more bifurcation to the system. Andrew, do you want to do you want to buy into that? Yes, uh, I've been a big defender of the demand-driven system, and incidentally, this was first proposed by the Liberal Party back in fight back thirty years ago, and put up by David Kemp in his uh, cabinet speech in nineteen ninety nine, where I was his advisor. So this does have a liberal legacy, and to me, it is a a market based system in which all the others are not. So the implication in your suggestion is the government can work out who should go to university. And I'm just not confident that is the case. I think at the top of the ATAR spectrum, yes, they're all fine. But once you go back down the spectrum, it's much more varied. So we do know that definitely on average, the lower ATARs are more likely to drop out, more likely to get bad marks, et cetera, et cetera. But there are some that do actually succeed and do much, much better than you would have anticipated. And so my view is you should give them good advice and good alternatives about the risks and benefits. And I think particularly for young men, the work we did at Grattan shows that mm. often they will be more likely to get a job and more likely to earn a decent income if they go down the bulkhead path. But apart from that, I'm quite open to the idea of let them have a try. So there are a lot of things in life where you really can't tell whether you're good at it until you try it. And in Australia, we've actually got something which is relatively unusual which is this census date which is where you get trigger your help debt which is usually about a month into term and so this is a, a try before you buy scheme the work at Grattan shows that lots of people in fact do leave prior to the census date so they worked out either the course or the subject is not for them and one of those last reports recommended we should use this a lot more. I noticed that some unis are already doing quite a good job on this, which, which is they're disenrolling students who haven't engaged by the census date and therefore saving them money. And so this is kind of, you're not abolishing selection, you're just slightly delaying it into first semester. And so I actually think this kind of meets both objectives that you are giving people opportunities, but at the same time, you are protecting them as much as anyone else uh, from the costs of uh, an experiment that's not working. I can, can, I, can I pick up on that, Nick, um, mm. before you ask another question? Because Andrew, I, I've long been a firm advocate of giving people the opportunity. However, some of your comments in some respects, I think, don't reflect the reality on the ground in that, I, yes, 
some are pulling out before those census dates, but there are an awful lot of students who don't. And while part of me says, yes, give people the opportunity to try, we also have to then factor in the serious repercussions if people fail. And there are, there are mental health implications. I'm not just talking about the economics of it. The impact of failure or of not succeeding can be really significant on a number of students. Now, recently the government announced, um, Alan Tudge announced that we were going to start requiring universities to counsel people. And if they'd failed more than half of their first year units, they'd be, you know, have to require universities to counsel students as to whether they come back. Now, first of all, part of me is appalled. That should be standard practice anyway. It doesn't, shouldn't need legislation for that. Should be happening. It's not across the sector. Some universities do it, others do not. That to me is just a no brainer and they should be doing it. Secondly, uh, you know, I, I guess that it comes to the point that, that you've said, Andrew, but that is also one year down the track. So uh, personally, I think this, I, I still think we have a way to go before universities fully uh, will fully take on that responsibility and do it well. And it's not through lack of will, it's through lack of, it's through the process, it's through the mechanics, it's through the bureaucracy of the big universities. It's it, we've still a way to get there. And as I say, I'm very mindful of the fact of providing an opportunity for somebody who wants to study, but we've got to weigh that up against the cost and the health cost to them. But it's also about the financial incentives, if you like, for universities, isn't it? Uh, the, the university takes on a student, uh, they'll, get, uh, they'll get paid for that student being there, much of that money coming from the federal government, of course. Uh, and if that student fails or drops out, um, it's no skin off the university's nose. It, it just keeps that money for its use. I wonder, maybe... Yeah, maybe, maybe. What do you think, Andrew? Is it? Is it? I know the gov federal government have tried this once, but is it possible to basically enforce a, a system in which universities carry a share of that risk, so that if a student, there may be more, make them more attentive to the possibility that student might drop out. Guess you could have another complex bureaucratic formula on this. Though in the report that we did at Grattan on, on dropping out, we did say that we believe the, the regulator Texa was lax on enforcing the rules here. But they do actually look at overall things like fails and attritions. But if you've got, you know, a modest cohort of low ATAR students who's doing appallingly badly, that's probably not going to show at an institution level because most of the students are doing okay. And so you really need to work out who are the at-risk groups, which would be low ATAR and some other groups, and then you know look at the pass rates and uh, progression rates of those students. And if they are persistently bad, then you, know, you are, as an institution, in trouble. Like you're actually breaking the rules on, on admitting people where you have to be assured there's some prospect of actually succeeding. So I think the rules have been vague and I think the minister is still uh, sitting on another revision of the standards. So uh, hopefully that's something which I think should be tightened up, that there should, should be clear criteria about, you know, what is an acceptable risk? You know, is it 50% chance of succeeding, 70%? I'm not sure exactly what it should be, but I think that you know, the system where basically the student takes all the risks is obviously a bad one. Mm, mm. Yeah. Um, coming to your point, though, Nick, we'd have to be careful of unintended consequences about 
if the university is going to be penalised if people fail, is there a potential unintended consequence that there'll be pressure on not to fail? Which is the problem with international students. So Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, let's move on to something that Andrew touched on there, and that is uh, vocational education. Uh, and along with the uh, expansion in numbers of students going to university over the last 10 years, there's been a corresponding decrease in the number of people taking up apprentices or vocational training. Um, how can we reverse this? And in particular, how can we reverse the, the popular perception that getting a trade skill is somehow second best to going to university? Well, for starters, it's not true. And um, I mean, after two decades working in education, in higher education, you know, I went in with certain beliefs and I just reconfirmed over that whole time. Everybody's got different skills. Everybody's got different talents. For some people, it is going into studying, further study, further academic study. They should be encouraged to do that. For those who it is more skills-based, people-based, workplace-based, encouraged into doing that. Neither one is better than the other. Even these days, and I think Bratton has done some research in this, um, it used to be that people with higher education had better outcomes over the course of their lifetime. So more income, um, better health, you know, all of those economic characteristics. In recent times, and given that we've increased the number of higher education students over the last two decades, I suspect that some of those traditional benefits have actually diminished a bit. And I do think that it is time, as Andrew said, if you get a trade, if you're a young man who gets a trade when you leave school, 30 years down the track, you're probably going to be a lot better off economically. You might have, depending on what your trade is, you might have a, a, a nick in your back if you're a brickie or something, but you'll be a lot better off financially than, say, somebody who's gone and done you know, a, a Bachelor of Economics or a Bachelor of Commerce from, from a university without necessarily having a specific career path that they wanted to follow. We actually have to start doing some really positive reinforcement here about the valued path, alternative pathways, that they're all equally, they're all equally as vital to Australia. I would say at the moment, Australia needs more skills, more skilled people, more tradespeople than we've got at present, um, far more than we do more lawyers. That's right. Nobody's going to argue with that, surely. And it has been a very tough one. So because a couple of things about apprenticeships. One is that they are a lot more exposed to the economic cycle than other forms of education because if there's, the employer's got no work, uh, they can't have an apprentice because there's nothing for them to do and they can't afford to pay them. The other is that there's very high attrition from apprenticeships, much higher than there is from university. And... So if we get more people to complete their apprenticeships, a lot of these shortages probably go away. And so the various financial and other reasons why there's high attrition from apprenticeships is really, I think, the key to this, rather than persuading large numbers of people who are doing higher ed, they'd be better off doing voc ed. This is also very, there's a very strong gender angle to it, that that report we did showed that for women, the kinds of alternatives they would have in say to say education or nursing which is what they do at the low ATAR do women do at uni things in aged care or early childhood or things like that they simply don't pay as much as the higher ed alternatives and therefore they're making a completely rational economic decision to do what they're doing 
And so there's you know, all sorts of issues about whether those occupations are fairly remunerated, but given the current actual market rates they're getting, uh, you can see why they're making the decisions they are. But for men, it's quite different. So a lot of these trades are relatively well paid. And what we find is that the less academically able men who've done a generalist course like business or arts often end up in jobs they could have got straight out of year 12 anyway. And so the only consequence of their degree is they've lost three or four years of experience and accumulated a help debt. And so the Gretton work showed yep. they actually got a, a negative financial return over their careers due to the fact that they're spending several years doing something which doesn't make money at the start of their working lives. We can't uh, end this discussion without touching on the issue of uh, cancel culture, um, uh, political activism, all these things which we now associate with university campuses. Celia, first to you, I mean, the, the federal government, as we mentioned before, does fund universities very heavily. To what extent can it use or, or should it try and use the funding tool to try and get universities to mend their ways when it comes to um, you know, greater freedom of expression, for example? Well, I think that we've already got freedom of expression. We've passed an academic freedom um, law. We've, uh, you know, the, the requirements for academic freedom. Look, the government has and always has done used the grant funding mechanism to impose conditions on universities. I remember going back to the early 2000s and uh, workplace laws and having to justify that you know, we had all of these policies in place with respect to all manner of workplace, and this was a condition of the grant. You know, it has been done, I think, since grants came into being. I, I, I don't buy into all of the... I do think that there's a lot of mythical comment. There's a lot of extreme comments made about universities that they've been taken over by the left and, and or that they've now become businesses. I don't think that I, you know, complete businesses with disregard for students or with disregard for the country or outcomes, they're just focused on money. I think that both are simplistic. I think that most universities fall somewhere in the middle of that. They're trying to do the best they can. Are they all uh, hotbeds of, of antagonism towards, towards government? I don't really think any more than they were in the 60s, 70s and 80s. You know, it, it's always been universities should be a place where there is disagreement and discussion. And I, I do think, but getting back to your point there, Nick, I do think that we have to ensure that both sides of arguments are allowed to be heard. And yes, there are, there have been times where in recent years where it seems that some voices are being shut down. And that's because universities care about their reputation, about their relationships with other partners. We have to monitor that, but doing more through the grant funding, I just think is is not the way to do it. Yeah, I was on. reading some stuff of Malcolm Fraser, strangely enough, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he was complaining in the 1970s that it was harder to speak on a uni campus than it was down facing the, the waterside workers, you know, the far left of the, the union movement. Though I do think there has been a qualitative change. And so if you take it back to the 70s or 80s, the people who are you know, preventing free speech, uh, including my own on occasion when I was a student, you know, they were old fashioned left authoritarians who didn't like what you were saying and wanted you to stop because didn't want anyone to be persuaded by it. Whereas now we've got an argument that you should shut up because people are being harmed by what you're saying rather than they might be persuaded by what you're saying. So I think that is a qualitatively different- well, That's kind of society. Argument. 
That's a it societal a, change, though, not just universities. But is it a kind of an attitude that kind of spreads, I think, into academia more? Where sort of this University of Melbourne case where Holly Longford Smith is being pressured not to give her views about feminism and the biological nature of being women and things like that. So I think that is a qualitative change. I don't think it's, it's probably not worse. It's less violent than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Um, but maybe it's creeping more into the academic work than it did back in, in the past where, like in my experience as sort of as a right-leaning student at Monash in the eighties was that even though it was a left-wing campus, I was treated with absolute respect and you know i never felt that i was being discriminated against based on my political views whereas i students these days do tell me they believe that's happening how well you know how justified those complaints are whether they're just annoyed they got a low mark and deserved a low mark um i i can't really say but that's what people are believing i can't let you go without a uh a redemptive ending. We like redemptive endings on on water cool. I want uh, one of you both in turn could tell me what we what we're doing well in our university sector and what we could do more of. Andrew. So one of the things I'd say is that for all the complaints about universities in Australia that they're inefficient and biased and all the rest of it, if you take it over a 30, 40 year period, they have massively improved their performance, vast increase in research output. Uh, vast increase in student numbers, which you've got reservations about, but it has been done. Uh, student satisfaction is about double what it was in the mid 1990s. Uh, even though attrition has sort of trended up a little bit in recent years, if you go back to the Murray report that you mentioned, you know, 60 years ago, it was way higher back then than it is now. And so you could argue that for all the faults, they are, they are institutions being pressed in lots of different ways, and nevertheless, they've managed to actually transform themselves and the surrounding society reasonably successfully over that time period. And they've also hit lots of problems in the past. And so even though we're headed for a very rough few years, I think the sector will eventually right itself. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, my comments, I think, would be very similar to Andrew's. I actually think that over what universities have improved on immensely over from my time when I was a university student in the 1980s to the current day, is actually a care about what they're teaching to students, how they're teaching it and how the students are faring. There is a lot more focus on the students than there was back in the, you know, earlier days. That has been a remarkable change in our universities to actually have a, you know, focus on the students. I also think that to the extent that all, and I think all of our universities do this, they engage with the communities in which they operate, whether it's the local community or at a state basis or at a national basis. And they're continually doing work with them, either free of charge or, you know, very, very basic grant funding, whether it be research or other sorts of work. They've very much embraced that community aspect to their roles as universities. They're not these little tucked away, um, you know, castles that don't venture out. They are actively engaging with our with the communities, and I think that 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 has been a remarkable turnaround, and it's and it's great. It's produced some fantastic results. Well, that's that's been a very uh, useful, I think, start at least in trying to unravel 
what's happening at universities uh, on water cooler. Uh, no doubt we'll come back to this topic. In fact, uh, you may have noticed during COVID we're, we're upping the number of water cooler episodes as a means of overcoming social distancing. We could even talk to people in Perth. How about that? But uh, it just remains for me to thank our guests. Thank you, Celia Hammond uh, from Perth and Andrew Norton. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Music.